And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Amen. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. John, that is John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Father, the only way to make sense of the fact that we are gathered here this morning is that the Son of God, the eternal Word of God, who is at your side in your bosom, literally, has made you known to us. He who has seen him has seen you, the Father. And we see him by the Spirit of Christ. Indeed, we worship the triune God this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we come to you in the Son and by the, and by the Spirit of Christ, and we pray that your Spirit would illumine us today, reversing our spiritual myopia, our our nearsightedness, which explains our fixation with material things, the physical world, and our dullness and boredom towards the ultimate things, the spiritual things, the eternal things concerning the true and living God. We pray that you would give us eyes to behold today through the preaching of your word. And we ask this for your son's sake. Amen. In 1961, the, the Russians put the first man in space. His name was Yari Gargarin. And Nikita Khrushchev, the Russian premier at the time, famously said that when Gagarin went into space, he discovered that there was no God there. Well, C.S. Lewis, in response, said that if there is a God who created us, and there is, we wouldn't discover him by going up in the air. God wouldn't relate to us the way a, a person on the second floor relates to a person on the first floor. He would relate to us the way William Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. He created Hamlet. He created Hamlet's world. In Hamlet's history. And Hamlet can only know Shakespeare if the author reveals himself in the play, in the drama. And so too, the only way to know about God, to know God, is if God reveals himself to us. That is, if he writes himself into our drama. If he writes himself into our history and comes to our world, that is, the full enfleshment of full deity. And Christmas signals, 
that he has. More importantly, the inspired apostle John tells us that he has done just that. And this gospel of John has as its goal that we would believe, that we would believe that not only there is a God, that we can only know him, that we can only be reconciled to him through his son, Jesus Christ. And for, thus, for those of us who already believe, John writes so that we would believe even more. Because we're like the man in Mark 9, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so John writes by the Spirit to awaken us to the glory of God in the face of the Son of God. To restore the awe. To restore the wonder, the delight, the joy that we are to have in our Creator and our Redeemer. The Apostle John knows that God-forgetting self-sovereignty, which is epidemic in sinful humanity, is destructive for his image bearers. And that's why the living God, in his zeal for his glory and his zeal for our, his image bearers, good, will not exit his position as Lord and give it to us. And so he comes on a rescue mission in his son. And this is a rescue text. And the first thing we see in this rescue text is the glory of the Son, the glory of the Word, the glory of Jesus' grace and truth. Look with me in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, two weeks ago, we saw in verse 1 that the Word is divine as well as eternal. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And yet, this Word is distinguishable from the Father. The Father doesn't become the Son in a different mode. It's a simultaneous reality. The Father and the Son, and we also recognize the Spirit in the triunity of God. And now he's going to drive home the glory of this incarnation. The Word who eternally exists and is the creator of all that exists. We saw that, right? Is alone worthy of our worship. And he became flesh. Now this is the most concise statement in all of Scripture concerning the incarnation. Now for some of you, uh, this term incarnation may be a kind of a vague term. So let's talk about that a moment. Uh, the word incarnation comes from the Latin incarnatio, which literally means in the flesh. In the flesh, God coming in the flesh, the enfleshment of God. Let me give you a, a very helpful definition, I think, here of the, of the incarnation. The, the incarnation is the miraculous act of God affected by the Holy Spirit, whereby the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took into union with himself 
a complete human nature apart from sin. In other words, the Son of God did not come into being at the Incarnation. He became a human being in addition to a divine being, an eternally divine being. And so in the Incarnation, and this is so important for us, God and humanity are joined in one person, never again to be separated. That's the glory of Christmas. Never again to be separated. And not only does John tell us that the Word became flesh, he tells us that this Word dwelt among us. Now that verb dwelt is an interesting verb. The English translations don't generally translate it this way, and I wish that they did. But the verb is the verb form of the Greek word, which literally translates tabernacles. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now this would have brought to mind to any believing Jew, or even perhaps a Jew just conversant with their, their scriptures, of the Israelites in the wilderness. When God revealed himself and God came to them via the tabernacle. And I think this is also clear by the reference to the word glory here that was associated with the Shekinah presence of God, that is the special revelatory presence of God in the tabernacle, and in particular, the Holy of Holies. So for instance, in Exodus chapter 40, after Moses uh, and Bezalel and, and all the Israelites had built the tabernacle, they had completed construction, and it was moving day, and they moved all of the furniture into that tabernacle, what happened? The glory of God descended on the Holy of Holies, and the cloud was so thick that Moses could not even enter. And now we see that glory in the flesh. We see that glory incarnate. Don McLeod, in his wonderful book, The Person of Christ, writes these words, The Son is the glory made visible. Not a different glory from the Father's, but the same glory in another form. The Father is the glory hidden. The Son is the glory revealed. It's a good word for us. In other words, all of who God is and all that enables Him to be known in truth is found in this Word, the Word of God made flesh. And this would have been glorious news to a believing Jew who was well-versed in the Old Testament. Because a believing Jew well-versed in the, the Old Testament would have recognized that some 600 years earlier, in response to Israel's idolatry and apostasy. Ezekiel chapter 10 tells us that the Shekinah glory of God that had filled that, that temple and had filled the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory of God had departed. 
And so, for instance, even when Israel or Judah was taken into exile, and then Cyrus signs the decree to allow the, the Jews to go back into Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, the glory never returned. When the glory departed in Ezekiel 10, it remained departed, and now in the Son of God, it is re-emerging for the first time. John adds that this glory was expressed in that the Word was full of grace and truth. Grace is one of the most important words in our Bible. It's used four times in this prologue, verses 1 to 18. It signifies a disposition to goodwill. A disposition to, to kindness and benevolence. And nothing captivates the human condition more than grace. But only when a need is perceived. So for instance, if you're a billionaire and I graciously give you $10, you yawn at that. You dismiss it. It means nothing to you. But if you're hungry and you're wondering how you're going to feed your kids today and I give you cash, you bow. You bow. Grace is good news to those who are needy. And, and when, when grace is given, the one giving the grace is absorbing the debt. And the recipient is receiving that grace at the cost of the giver. But John tells us that grace is never separated from truth. With humans, mere humans, we separate grace from truth sometimes. We'll compromise truth to give someone grace. But grace is never compromised. Truth is never compromised by grace in the economy of God. In fact, the word truth is a very important term in the Gospel of John. It's used 25 times. For instance, John tells us, Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way the truth. He is truth incarnate. Now, most believe, most scholars believe that John is contemplating, meditating upon Exodus 34, 6, and 7 when he lays out this exposition of, John, of Jesus. So in Exodus 34, Moses has asked God, show me your ways, show me your glory. And God responds by preaching a sermon about himself. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And those two words, steadfast love and faithfulness, correspond to the Greek terms here for grace and truth. And these two words appear numerous times in the Old Testament becomes a very important truth that God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, which could also be translated in truthfulness. So, for instance, in Proverbs 16, 6, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. Think about that. God has devised a plan 
where he could atone for sin and not compromise who he is as a holy and righteous God and a wise God. Psalm 25.10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Think about that. Everything God does, all the paths he takes are informed by this steadfast love and faithfulness. And now we know this steadfast love and faithfulness, this grace and truth incarnate in the Son. And so we may, we may be full of sin. He is full of grace. We may be full of deceit and ignorance. He is full of truth. And that's what motivated John the Baptist's words in verse 15. We see the glory of Jesus' person. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. Now, John the Baptist is one of the most important figures in the New Testament. Do you realize that he is mentioned 89 times in the New Testament? 89 times. John the Baptist connects the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New Testament, and the, the dawn of the New Covenant as a kind of bridge, a connective bridge, a redemptive bridge, if you will. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and yet he was the first herald of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God expressed through the Davidic king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet here he insists in verse 15, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Jesus was not before John the Baptist with regard to birth. With regard to conception, John the Baptist was conceived before Jesus. He was born before Jesus, but he recognizes that Jesus is more than just a man. He's the eternal word of God. And so why does he preach that? Because as this eternal word, as this eternal Lord, we are accountable to him. Whether you recognize it or not, you can deny gravity, but step off a cliff. Whether you deny gravity or not, you'll learn quickly that your denial of it does not dismiss the reality of it. We were born and created for the Son of God. And therefore, we owe all our allegiance, our worship, and our adoration to Him. Worship is our identity as humans. And all of us worship something ultimately. And if it's not God in Jesus Christ, it's an idol that will not only condemn our souls, it will destroy our lives. We are designed for worship, and in particular, the living God in Jesus Christ. And this involves devotion, it involves obedience, it involves commitment and trust and service. And he is worthy of this because of the glory of his person. John the Baptist recognized that. But he's also worthy because of the glory of his provision. That brings us to verses 16 and 17. One of my favorite verses, by the way, in all the Bible. I remember as a new believer reading verse 16 and not fully recognizing all that it meant. I still don't understand fully all that it means. I think it will take all eternity to come to terms with this. 
But verse 16 is a glorious, beautiful truth for believers. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus, the Son of God, the Word of God, has a fullness of every real need that we have. A, a fullness of every spiritual blessing, which implies that we are empty before we trust in Him. We're empty, and that's why we need His fullness. So think about it. Let's just review John 1 thus far. He is the Word of God to address our ignorance. He's the light of God to address our spiritual darkness. He's the life of God to raise us from our spiritual death. And He's the grace of God to address our sin. And He is the truth of God to address our deceit. There is fullness of cleansing power in His blood. John would later write in 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see that? Every sin you could ever commit. The blood of Jesus, the son of God, cleanses us from all sin. There's fullness of pardon in him. Paul will write in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the condemnation fell on the Son in our place. There's fullness of victory in His death. For by His death, He rendered powerless Him who has the power over death. That is the devil. Hebrews 2, verse 17. And for those who receive Him, John writes, to those who believe in His name, He gives the right to become the children of God. That's an invitation to everyone here. To those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. It's like giving an orphan an opportunity to become a son, to become a daughter, to become a child of God with all the rights and the privileges of sonship. In other words, we receive his fullness as sons and daughters for those who believe. Which John says, I love this, is grace upon grace. Grace, literally, grace in the place of grace. Never-ending provision. It's like a flood of grace. When one grace has been given, there is another grace ready for us in its place. You see, there are only two identities that we can have. Now, God assigns our identity. Recognize that. God assigns us our identity. We either have the identity as a sinner or as a child of grace. Now, as believers, our identity is children of grace. That's our identity. And yet, we have to daily appropriate that identity by the Spirit of Christ. We had to wake up every day and recognize that fundamentally we were once positionally sinners. Now we are positionally children of grace. And as children of grace, we have grace for forgiveness for every sin. 
Grace for forgiveness. You say, well, that, that would lead someone to, to live in a cavalier way, a, a, a way that just kind of abuses grace, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Greasy grace. But no, because there's grace also for enablement. When you receive that grace for forgiveness, you also receive grace to enable you to love God and obey Him. It's grace that changes your desires. You can't change them in and of yourself. We're too naturally perverse. We're guilty and we're corrupt. We're born into original sin. But there's effectual grace that enables us for the first time to love God, to love our neighbor, to love His Word, to love His gospel, to love His people. There's also grace for deliverance. We are progressively delivered from the, the power of sin, and one day we're going to fundamentally be delivered once for all from sin, the penalty of sin. And this is a glorious truth for us. And when we understand our need for His grace, recognize this. Faith becomes nothing less than a grace addiction. When you recognize daily and moment by moment your need for grace, grace for forgiveness, grace for enablement, grace for deliverance, faith becomes a grace addiction. And until you recognize that, faith is just some academic mental assent that changes nothing. So when we read grace upon grace... We bow. Something that the living, living merely by the law could never do for us. And that brings us to verse 17. He says in verse 17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, the contrast between law here and grace and truth is not that the law was bad and Jesus is good. That's not the contrast. The law is good. Rather, both the giving of the law and the coming of Jesus marks stages in God's coming to humanity, reaching out to humanity. And Jesus marks the final definitive revelation as the very grace and truth incarnate that the law prepares us for, points us to. The Old Testament is a, is a foreshadowing that finds its ultimate definition in this one who is full of grace and truth. And so John will later write that Jesus is greater than Abraham. Now that's a remarkable statement to a Jew in the first century. But in John 8, 58, Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham existed, I am. And of course, he's using the name that was revealed to Moses when Moses asked the Lord at the burning bush, What is your name? In John chapter 4, after offering the Samaritan woman living water in John 4, 12, the woman looks at Jesus and says, are you greater than Jacob? And of course, the implication is yes. 
In John chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, You claim to believe Moses. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. Because he wrote of me. And that's why verse 17 is a fitting springboard to John's climax here in verse 18. The glory of Jesus' revelation. Notice verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. Now, there's one of those some 10 to 12 times in the New Testament where it explicitly defines, calls, designates Jesus as God. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. I think John is contemplating, meditating upon Exodus 33, verse 20, where God said to Moses, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now Moses did see the backside of the Lord in chapter 33, verse 23. In other words, he's allowed to experience some degree of God's self-revelation, but he's not permitted an unlimited experience. For had he been, or had he seen God's person in an unencumbered way, he would have died. It would have been fatal. Likewise, the reason for our inability to see God is twofold. First of all, as the Catechism teaches us, God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. The second reason we cannot see God is that sin, which we're born into and which we commit every day, breaks all relations between God and man. It alienates us. And the the alienation is twofold. God is alienated from us because of his wrath on sin, and we're alienated from him because of our rebellion, because the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. And here's the point. Jesus surmounts both obstacles. He himself, God, a very God, became a man so that we could see God. That's why he says in John 14, He who has seen me, has seen the Father. In fact, I love this verb. He has made him known. Notice that, the last phrase of the prologue. That verb gives us our word, exegesis. You ever heard that term? Exegesis, it means to explain, to unfold. Every man that gets in this pulpit exegetes the word of God. His calling is to explain, to unfold what is already there. And Jesus, the Word of God, the Son of God, exegetes the Father so that we can see God. So by putting on human flesh, the Son of God surmounts the first obstacle. God is a spirit, does not have a body like men, therefore we cannot see him. But how does he surmount the second obstacle? That is, we are sinful. 
and we're alienated from God. And this brings us to, I believe, the most important reason that Jesus Christ, the Word of God, tabernacled among us. Think of all that the tabernacle, and John is clearly reflecting on the tabernacle. He is saying, that is this. That was a shadow. Jesus is the substance. Think about all that the tabernacle reflected and represented and offered. The tabernacle represented the fact, first of all, that the Lord rules. Now, why do we say that? Because the, the, the mercy seat, the scripture tells us, was the throne room of God. It's where God ruled. He, he ruled from the Ark of the Covenant, in particular the lid, that mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant. And then you have Aaron's rod that's housed by the Ark of the Covenant. So the Lord rules. We also know that the tabernacle represents the fact that the Lord reveals. He is a revealing God. He, the, the law, the Ten Commandments, which is the summary of the law, was housed in the Ark of the Covenant. So the Lord rules. He reveals. But we also know from the tabernacle that He resources. There was manna, a jar of manna in the ark, which drove home to believers that God resources our journey, our pilgrimage. He rules, he reveals, and he resources, but he also reconciles. The mercy seat was where the blood was sprinkled from the sacrifice substitute, the, the lamb the goat that was sacrificed in the place of sinners. And God was literally propitiated. He was satisfied. His wrath on sin was satisfied in the substitute that died in the place of sinners. He reconciled so that, and here's the final point about the tabernacle, he could reside with his people. So he's a ruling God. He is a revealing God. He is a resourcing God. He's also a reconciling God and residing God. And Christmas reminds us that in the incarnation, as well as his entire life on earth and his cross, we see all of these realities in the Son of God through whom grace and truth came. In other words... The incarnation is not the whole story. It's a vital part of the story. Think about the fact that he was conceived in the womb, representing babies in the womb. I believe that it was vital that he be conceived in the womb because there will be babies that are miscarried. There will be babies that are aborted. Righteous for the unrighteous. And he grew up as a young boy, and he grew up to full adulthood, and then he went to the cross. In other words, incarnation is not the end of the story. It's the means to an end. The end was Calvary. Unless the incarnation is seen in direct relationship to Calvary, its true purpose is missed. Indeed, in Jesus, and ultimately in his cross, God vindicated his truthfulness 
by remaining faithful to his promise that sin must be judged. He also demonstrated his grace by sending his son to die in the place of those who deserve judgment. And herein lies the movement of the Christmas drama. It's threefold. Glory forsaken. Jesus, the Son of God, forsook the glory of heaven. Now, inherently, he still has the glory of God. He is the glory of God. But it was veiled because he took on flesh, human flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And so the glory of God was veiled. So, in a sense, his glory was forsaken. But secondly, glory was liberated because we are natural self-glory junkies. Thirdly, glory was restored. Whereas we once lived for our own glory, for our own names, we now live for the glory of our Creator and our Redeemer. And it's because of this we so resonate, and I want to close here with these words, we'll just look at them on the screen, from Charles Wesley and his friend George Whitfield. George Whitfield essentially gave us the title, and Wesley gave us the lyrics. Christ, by highest heaven adored. Christ, the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Heart the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Hail the heaven born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Heart the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. And John writes that we would believe. And by believing we would have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace for our sin, truth for our ignorance. And Lord, I just pray today that as the text tells us, grace upon grace has been given to us of his fullness we've all received. I pray, Lord, that that grace would stir us to faith, hope, and love, to holiness. Lord, that would inform the way we respond in our homes, the way we respond in the workplace, 
Lord, the way we respond to disappointments and trials. Grace and truth in a person as Christ is formed in us by the Spirit. But Lord, I also recognize there's some here today that likely have never trusted in Jesus. Lord, I just pray that you would give them new birth today. As the song tells us and promises. That you would open their eyes to behold the beauty and the glory of the Son of God. And that by believing, they would have life in his name. And we ask this for your son's sake. Amen. As we stand and as we sing.